Anna never expected to be in an abusive marriage. She was young when she married, only 18, and having been raised by a widowed Latter-day Saint mother in Mexico, she knew nothing about domestic violence. When it became a pattern in her marriage, she was hurt and confused, unsure about whether this was a normal part of married life. I'd never been in a situation like this, so it was a really big trial. Later, I realized that most Mexican women have these challenges. It's just we keep quiet and no one says anything. We experience abuse, but no one speaks about it. No one talks about it out of fear. But I'd never heard of this before and I'd never seen it. I asked my mother-in-law about the abuse and she said it's normal. You have to endure it. So I said, well... I guess it's normal. When I realized that it wasn't right, that was thanks to someone who opened my eyes. Domestic violence is a problem that haunts women in every country, every religion, and every socioeconomic class. Eventually, Anna, with the help of friends and family, chose to take steps to end the abuse. She also has bravely chosen to speak out about her experience and fight against prevailing norms that lead women to keep silent about this problem. I'm Caroline Klein, and you're listening to This Global Latter-day Life. Escaping or ending abusive situations is a powerful theme in several oral histories from Claremont Graduate University's oral history collections. Today, we'll share with you Anna's story of working to end the abuse in her Latter-day Saint marriage. In order to protect her privacy, we've given a pseudonym to Anna, and Sigrid Hernandez is reading a translation of the words Anna spoke in her oral history interview. I'll be joined by Sarah Bonilla, a licensed marriage and family therapist who has worked with several Latina Latter-day Saints. We'll be discussing themes and questions these oral histories raise, particularly around Mormon masculinity and female agency. So Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and why you care about this topic of domestic violence? Yeah, so my name's Sarah Bonilla, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I've been working basically for the past 15 years exclusively with the LDS population. So I have encountered a lot of domestic violence situations where we're, and also with the involvement of bishops and priesthood leaders. So I've seen a lot of different things as far as how people respond to domestic violence. And I feel really strongly about women getting the support and help that they need to thrive. And so what that, whatever that means I'm a big proponent of, and I found in a lot of my work, I'm often advocating for making sure that everyone's needs are being met in a right, fair, healthy way. So I'm just really passionate about this because I've seen it so much in my career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is such a hugely important issue. And it's an issue that so many people can agree is important, whether it's church leaders or feminists or traditional Latter-day Saints. This is an issue that needs to be rooted out, and everyone would agree to that. And I think church leadership often does a really good job of encouraging 
benevolent masculinity in its male members. And this is something that really came out in so many of the oral histories I did with global women, that this is a really appealing aspect of the church, the way that masculinity is talked about, benevolent masculinity. However, women around the world, both Latter-day Saint and not Latter-day Saint, they still experience domestic violence way too often. And it's a subject that's rarely talked about, so I'm really glad that we're taking on this issue today and delving into it. Anna grew up in a loving Latter-day Saint home in Yucatan, Mexico. She had three older brothers and a mom who were protective, kind, and emphasized the importance of obedience. When she met a forceful returned missionary at 18, she was unsure if she should marry him. He had specific goals, and I wasn't ready to get married yet. I would see him, and I would feel scared. But just like my mom, he would say, Everything I tell you is the best thing for you. So I obeyed. It was always obediencia. After much prayer and no answers, she talked to a church leader's wife and came to understand that she had to make this decision herself. Father in heaven wasn't going to tell me. The decision was mine. I mean, he's not going to take away my free agency by saying, yes, it's him, or no, this is not the one. This was part of the decision that I had to make. Respect for free agency, the Latter-day Saint concept that God has gifted humans with the right to choose their paths in life, is an important theme in Anna's oral history. She would eventually come to understand that she was responsible for making her life what she wanted it to be. This gave her the determination to work through what turned out to be an abusive marriage. Anna endured the abuse for years. She had three children with her husband, but one day when she was visiting her mother and brothers, they found out about the violence. Shocked and upset, they advised her to get a divorce. Her mother reached out to a lawyer Anna had grown up with. This man was currently serving as a stake president, and he arrived with divorce papers. He said, your husband is going to be here in 15 minutes. He asked me, what do you want to do? Do you want to get divorced? And I said, no, no, he is a good man. He is a good member of the church. He just has this difficulty. I need to help him until it goes away. But I don't know how. I don't have the ability to handle it. I don't know how to do it. The stake president said, here are the divorce papers. Let's give them to him. If he signs, it's because he wants to change and it won't happen again. If he doesn't sign, that means you shouldn't go back because he is not sure that he'll be able to stop hitting you. Anna took the stake president's advice and presented her husband with divorce papers. My husband cried and cried and cried. He knew what all this was about. He asked me, do you know what you're asking me to sign? I said, yeah. And he said, I will sign. I will sign because I know that I can change. And I know that this won't happen again. He cried because he didn't know if when he signed, I would sign. He didn't know that was going to happen. But he said, if you're asking me to sign it so that you can come back to me, 
if this is the condition, then I'll sign. And he signed. Her husband was true to his word. He totally changed. Everything changed. It was like starting a new marriage. That's when I realized that we are the ones who have the answer to decide how to change our own husbands. We live with them more than their own mothers, and we end up educating them. When things aren't being done right, it's only because we're afraid to do what we need to. Like any mother who is afraid to punish their child because you don't know if the child will react well or not, so we don't do it. This is the reason things don't change. For fear. Anna has an expansive sense of a person's agency, believing that women can stem violence by literally choosing not to take it anymore. Change from weakness to strength, from passivity to action, is a driving theme in her oral history. Nevertheless, her oral history points to constraints on her agency. Even after the violence in her marriage ended, she describes having to carefully finesse her husband to get the outcomes she wants. We, women, have the ability and tremendous capacity to get the things we want without our husbands realizing. We let them believe it is them who are making the decision, but in reality, they're doing what we think is best. For example, he would always choose the furniture. He chose the color of the house, and I didn't like any of it. I didn't have the negotiating skills to say, I like this color, and look, I like this piece of furniture. So I started to think about how to tell him that I wanted the kitchen to be white and blue. And I said, how do I explain this to him? How do I tell him? How do I choose my colors? One day we went to a friend's house who was renovating her kitchen and I liked it. On the way back from their house, I commented on the good taste the husband had in choosing these colors. Later, when I came to our house, the same colors were in my kitchen. While Anna successfully motivated her husband to stop the abuse, power dynamics are such that she does not have the same decision-making power in the marriage. However, she is happy in her marriage now. She sees her husband as coming a long way, both from his prior behavior and the behavior of his family of origin. Men in my husband's family don't wash dishes. They don't wash clothes. They don't sweep. They hit. My father-in-law is a chauvinist, but my husband isn't. He always helped with the kids. He's always washed bottles, washed diapers. He helps me with meals and he lets me work. He lets me have my money and spend my money. One interesting question her oral history raises is the role of church leadership in addressing domestic violence. Her stake president friend was clearly willing to help her stop the abuse. Some local leaders also were willing to address the problem. She talked about her stake in Mexico City arranging for 15 women from each ward to attend a three-day program 
hosted by an LDS woman formerly involved in the Miss America pageant. Anna described going to this program and hearing this woman speak about her own experience with domestic violence. Everyone in the audience was like, I'm not the only one. And we all started to write. And I turned around to look and saw everyone was writing their experience with abuse down. And we were just 15 women from the word. So what about the rest? That's when I realized it's not just here or there. It's everywhere. At the same program in Mexico City, Anna described other focuses of the weekend. They did fashion ideas with the sisters. They taught us the color wheel, how to put makeup on. We ended with a fashion show, modeling clothes, new haircuts, new looks. You leave with a different mentality. The weekend was about your worth as a woman. And most importantly, that you don't have to stay silent. Giving voice to her own experience of abuse was empowering for Anna. She became determined to not bury her experience, but to speak openly about it. She wants more done within the church to address this serious problem. The priesthood knows that domestic violence is happening. What hurts me the most is that they don't. I think there should be more specific classes or more specific trainings, things that are more direct. Because when you say things out loud, things aren't left to the imagination. So there need to be trained members of the church who speak directly. Because if there aren't, it can be counterproductive. Anna suggested to a stake president in Veracruz that they find the American woman and ask her to run a workshop for women in her area. But it appears her stake president never took her up on that suggestion. This, along with some missteps she has seen in her ward and stake, has left her with a sense of the human fallibility of everyone, including local church leaders. In stake conferences, they say, we have excellent bishops and excellent stake president, excellent leaders. Yes, I'm sure they say that because we should respect them and not just look at their mistakes. But I think we would feel better if we said bishops are human beings and they also have their faults. While disappointed about some choices local leaders have made, Anna enjoys a vibrant spiritual life. Particularly important to her is the temple, where she has had a beautiful experience being sealed to her parents when her father's temple work was done. In the temple, my parents were sealed, and it made an impression on me. It was a precious experience, seeing us all in white, my mom in white, seeing all my brothers in white. The week we came back from Mexico City, that's where we were all sealed. I dreamed. I had such a special dream that when I woke up, I felt so energized. When I woke up, I went and told my dream to my mother. When I described the dream, my mother hugged me and said, Dad chose you to tell us that he has accepted the gospel. Dreams are an important part of her spiritual life, 
as they are for many other Mexican women whose oral histories we have in our archive. We're a dreaming people. So I dream many things. Everything has meaning. My mother has died. My father has died. All of my brothers who I loved so much died. And we have this help that they can come to us in dreams to guide us and help us. If we are good, we can understand many of the things they tell us, what they foretell, because we admired them when they were here on earth. I have a lot of experiences with this. Anna's story is ultimately one of liberation through transformation and connection. She's found a sense of liberation and power in the connections with family members, past and present, that she has cultivated in her temple worship and spiritual life. She has also found a sense of liberation from learning to stand up against abuse, from raising her voice about her experience, and from her determination to tell her truth. Change from weakness to strength is the unifying theme of her oral history. I think that everything I lived, I needed to have lived it. I grew up in a bubble of complete love, peace, and tranquility. My character was very weak. I needed to live a really challenging experience so I could have a strong character. Okay, Sarah, so you have worked with many Latina Latter-day Saints as a marriage and family therapist, and you yourself are Latina, and I was wondering if you can speak generally about Latina women's experiences with the church, what draws them to the church, as well as the role of benevolent or not-so-benevolent masculinity in their lives. And like, where do the women in your family, for instance, and the women you talk to find power in Mormonism? For me personally, I grew up in a family where there was a partnership marriage, basically, where I was really modeled. There are two heads of the family and no one answers to the other. And I think that that has personally really informed my work as a therapist, as I've encountered different situations where I feel like these are clearly not partnership marriages. There's someone clearly being abused, right? That there's this element of, well, we have to submit to our, to the male, to the priesthood holder. We have to hearken to our husbands, right? And so I feel like once someone kind of realizes that within Mormonism, you can have a partnership oriented marriage, that that's actually a very healthy spiritual thing to have that people can draw power from that, right? That is, I think in some ways it happens more than we realize that those partnership marriages are out there, but they're not put on a pedestal. It's not, this is what you want. It's more of, well, this happens behind closed doors. And so for me, I found a lot of power in seeing a healthy relationship modeled to me while also having the women in my family Both of my paternal grandmother is a convert and my mom is a convert. And so they found a lot of comfort in how structured and family oriented the church is and how much the emphasis is on nuclear families and, you know, providing and being a team and, you know, not having substances be in the home and those different types of things. So that was very powerful for both my grandmother and my mother. But I also feel like 
my grandmother, my mother really took on this role with me of saying, there's these things out there and we want you to be prepared to know how to deal with them as a woman. Right. And so I feel like by the time I launched at 18, I felt like I was very well informed of how things could go wrong in a marriage, even though those things I hadn't seen like witnessed directly as a kid. But I feel like my story is a little bit unusual. I feel like a lot of women kind of launch and they've never had these kind of conversations before, right? Mm -hmm. Like they've never had the women in their family tell them, look, if you're with a guy and he's dating, you're dating him and he's yelling at you and he's being controlling, you should put up some boundaries and talk about it and get out if it's not healthy. And I had that type of coaching all through my childhood and all through my early adulthood years. And I look back now and I think that was very progressive, but it's really informed my work in the sense that I feel like everyone deserves a happy, healthy relationship. And so when there's this benevolent patriarchy, I think that what happens is when we give our power to men, even if they're nice about it, we're still not feeling like we have control over our lives. Like we're still giving over control. And I think that that can be a really slippery slope into things like being abused, getting those types of things. And so I think that there's this element of patronizing that happens with that benevolent um, patriarchy, right? Where, you know, oh, sister, I know best, right? Like I, I know what is the right thing for you. And I am kind of in charge of you. And that's, and I was kind of, I don't know. I just really, I was really thinking about this as I prepared for this interview. And I thought I was taught that that's not how it should be. And I feel like that needs to be talked about in young women's. It needs to be talked about in relay society. Like we can do a better job of preparing, especially Latin women to understand the signs, to understand what to do when something like that happens, right. To help a friend, it's happening. Yeah. And that was one of the most striking things about Anna's oral history to me is that she wasn't sure it was wrong. And she lived with the abuse for years because she had, a you know, at least one person in her life telling her that this is normal. Like, this is what marriage is. They're going to hit you. And it was only like years later that she realized that there were people, Latter-day Saint people around her who were saying, no, like, this is absolutely unacceptable. So it does seem to me like there can be in certain contexts, luckily not in yours, thank goodness, but in certain contexts, there is a real lack of discussion about issues of violence within relationships and control and so forth. And so her Anna's journey, where she gets to this point where she is determined to, to speak out about domestic violence is really moving because it is a taboo topic. And I was wondering what else struck you about Anna's story? Like, what is it that really jumped out at you in her narrative? You know, the thing that was interesting to me was how the state president handled it and how he said, this is wrong. And this is, here's the papers for him to sign a, you know, to get a divorce. And what he does is very indicative of where he's at. And I thought, you know, she needed someone to come in and say, this is wrong and give her the tool to make a choice basically about whether she should stay or go. And so I felt like that's not necessarily the common response with priesthood leaders within the church when they, when this type of situation is happening. And so I was really impressed that she got that type of support and she was open to it. Yeah, no, I thought uh, the role of that stake president friend, it seemed like he knew exactly what to do, like in this situation, which is 
you got to force the husband's hand. I mean, you have to get him to truly commit to not doing this anymore. And the way to do it is you get him to sign these divorce papers and tell him you're not moving back until he signs these divorce papers. And you will hold on to these divorce papers. And the second he hits you again, you sign them and you're out of there. And I thought it was just, it was like, I'd never thought of this kind of mechanism, but it absolutely worked in Anna's situation. And she got ultimately a marriage that she's quite happy with. And so it's a great journey. It is, however, even as she ultimately gets a marriage she's happy with, it is clear that it is circumscribed to some degree. And you can kind of see that in the anecdote about her wanting to choose the colors that her kitchen will be redecorated in. And she can't forthrightly say, I want blue and white. She has to kind of manage and and subtly kind of indicate that this is, would be a really great way to go. And so it seemed like it was a really interesting vision, what we get in this oral history, a female agency. Like on the one hand, you have her transforming from this position, she would say, of weakness to strength and where she believes she can stop abuse. And she believes all women have the power to stop abuse if they just stand up and take control of their lives. And this is an expansive vision of agency. And yet she's also sort of dealing with clearly some some circumscribed power. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on systemic or structural issues in societies or cultures that do make it hard for some women to seize their power and escape or end abusive situations. Because it's not, you know, this really worked for Anna, I don't know if it would work in every situation. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I think she had a husband who was scared out of his mind of losing her and and said, I'm going to make some changes. And unfortunately, not every abuser is like that. And so you can make a hard line on someone and say, here's the ultimatum, and it's still not work, right? So I think for me, with the kind of the systemic, the structural things, and this is, I think, what Anna wanted was to educate more women to say, you know, she had a really powerful experience where someone did talk about abuse and they had like the fashion show and they were able to recognize their needs and their wants and what was healthy. And so for me, the, the biggest thing is that there has to be education, especially from other women within our cultures, within our society to talk about, this is what this looks like. And this is common across all cultures, all societies, all, you know, this isn't something that's just this our population. And so I think when that, for me, like when that happens, I think that all of a sudden you don't feel alone. You feel like maybe there's someone that I could turn to for, for help. And as well as I think Anna, not even knowing this is what this is Mm -hmm. and that identification of it, I think is so key and something that's held back so much from people because they don't know, they just don't know. Like there's so many people that land in my office where they're describing things to me and I say, you realize this is abuse. And they say, this is the first time that someone's called it that, but I've wondered, you know, or I feel that heaviness, but no one's called it that. And so I think once we really start calling it for what it is, a lot of change can happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Another sort of theme that came up in this oral history that struck me, it was the theme of obedience. And it was her journey with obedience and the way she she frames her story. She's, you know, she's constructing her own oral history here. And she starts out by saying, 
I was taught the importance of obedience from the time I was a small child. And my mom would tell me obedience is important and I believed her. And then this very forceful young man came along and told me he knew what was best for me. And the obedience sort of thing just kicked in for her. And that is what kind of structured their marriage, at least for a certain degree of time. And so I was thinking about this concept of obedience and the way it's talked about in Mormonism. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts about obedience as a virtue and if there is maybe some way we can nuance this discussion. Maybe there's other concepts that should also be upheld or emphasized, for instance, integrity, because obedience doesn't work so well, if, especially if you have people around you, abusive people around you telling you what to do. Obedience is not going to set you up well for strength. It's not going to set you up well for growth. But integrity, now that's something that maybe I think does set you up for strength and growth. So anyway, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about the sort of the obedience theme and the virtue of obedience. Yeah, I think it's something that deeply, deeply entrenched, you know, it's something that's very strong within the Mormon community. Obedience is seen as kind of the the gift that you can give to Heavenly Father, to everyone else in your life. And I think that there's kind of this thought of like, if I'm really obedient, then bad things won't happen to me, right? And the thing with obedience is that it doesn't protect you from difficult life circumstances. And so what I talk with people about is, like you're saying with integrity, I say, how can you live your most authentic life? And I almost feel like sacrilegious saying it, but I think that that's almost more important than being obedient is how do you be authentic? And if that means that you are not quote unquote obedient to your parents because you say, no, I don't want to marry this guy. I don't feel like this is the right thing to do. That's okay. Living an authentic, integrity-driven life is more important than kind of some of these obedient markers that we put out for people, right? Yeah, thank you. These are such great reflections on this oral history. Do you have any last thoughts before we leave? Is there anything else you'd like to say about Anna's oral history and her experience? I just loved how she became so passionate about wanting to help others. And I felt like that to me is something that I see with a lot of women who've been abused who are now out of those situations where they are just wanting to give back so much. And I think we should really embrace that. Let her be open about telling her story. You know, that's why I think this project is so great. It's because we're saying this happens and let's talk about it. And so I think that she's doing a really brave thing by sharing what she shared. One final word of thanks to Shiloh Logan for the many hours he put into editing this episode. A Claremont Graduate University Mormon Studies podcast. This global Latter-day Life is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the Dialogue Gospel Study Podcast. I recently listened to a dialogue lesson led by Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife discussing the fall of King David in the Old Testament, and I just loved her insights about hubris, self-deception, vulnerability, and spiritual development. Check out the Dialogue Gospel Study Podcast. Hi, this is Caroline Klein, host of This Global Latter-day Life. If you're enjoying the kind of stories you're hearing from Latter-day Saint women around the world on this show, you'll also enjoy my new book. It's called Mormon Women at the Crossroads, and it's filled with compelling stories like the ones you've been hearing on This Global Latter-day Life. Order a copy at the University of Illinois Press website, on Amazon.com, or from your favorite local book retailer. 
Mormon Women at the Crossroads by Caroline Klein.